having someone that really cares about the culture just from a very kind of a pure standpoint really goes a long way in developing relationships, which is key to any business that you're in. It's like, how do you, how do you connect with people beyond talking about business? And, you know, one of the ways you can do that is through understanding their culture, learning their language, and really taking an interest in some of the things that they're interested in. Because coming from the U.S., we dominate pop culture. Everybody loves American movies and music and whatnot, but it's not always reciprocated. And so when you do take that step and learn about other countries and what they like, it really does go a long way toward developing some very meaningful relationships. You're listening to the Transcend Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Wilkerson, an attorney by training and an educator at heart. This podcast is all about empowering you to build a business and leave a legacy. Here's the thing. The wealth gap in America is consistently increasing. And while full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone, even a side hustle can change your financial landscape if you're intentional about using your business to build wealth. I've run my own law firm for over 10 years. And in that time, I've helped countless California businesses go from idea to six figures. On this podcast, we talk about what it truly takes to build a sustainable business and find financial freedom. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. Hope you all are doing well. Today's guest on the podcast is Bobby Amiri. I'm excited to have him on the podcast today, and I know you all are going to enjoy the conversation. He's super dynamic, does a lot of work with VCs and startups, so it's definitely something you'll want to tune into. He's also a Silicon Valley native, grew up in East Palo Alto, and he's also an emerging market-focused entrepreneur and investor with over 20 years of experience in the tech industry. So he advises and invests in early stage startups and also runs corporate accelerator programs, educating founders and lean startup and connecting startups to the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Since 2015, he's helped accelerate more than 156 startups from emerging markets with over 126 million raised. Bobby co-founded the Pioneer Accelerator with Google Developers Launchpad while with Global Silicon Valley Labs, GSV, one of the largest innovation hubs in Silicon Valley. He is the co-founder and head of business development for iLab Collective, an innovation agency and venture studio serving corporations in the U.S., Southeast Asia, and Latin America. Bobby's also an investor and limited partner at Bolero Ventures, a Guadalajara, Mexico-based VC. He previously worked in sales and marketing operations for both IBM and HP. He is educated with an MBA from Pepperdine University with a focus on global markets and is fluent in both Portuguese and Spanish. So for all you folks out there that love to travel, want to figure out how you can mix business and seeing the world. If you speak multiple languages, this is definitely the episode for you to tune into. Hope you enjoy. All right. So Bobby, thank you so much for joining me here today. Welcome to Transcend the Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Asha. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. I have to be honest, though. I just got back from traveling and I'm readjusting to life in the Bay Area. And you know, have you ever had that vacation blues? Not that I was on vacation, but that blues when you get back and you're like, what am I doing? You ever have that? All the time. Every trip I've had, <laughs> had the blues. Like, oh, got to think about my next trip. You know, just, I love traveling, meeting new people, being abroad, that sort of thing. So when I come back, there's always this reverse culture shock that I'm dealing with. But it passes as soon as I'm on that next flight. Yeah. 
Totally. I can relate. So last time I think I chatted with you, you were in Korea on business. Can you tell us a little bit about what has you traveling all over the world for business? Yeah. So first of all, Korea was in April of this year. So it was just uh, kind of the tail end of the pandemic. And, and certainly things aren't necessarily back to normal. But at that time, going to Korea was kind of a hassle because had to make sure we had the vaccination record updated 72 hours before the flight. Take another one when we got there. Had to stay in this government hotel for a night. Take a bus over to my hotel after that, after everything got squared away. And then I had to take another test before we even got on the flight to come back to the U.S. So it was kind of a kind of a deal. And I couldn't actually travel anywhere within Korea, they had these special taxis that we had to take. So everything was organized by the government and they were super strict about everything. So, but I went out there to visit with the government, which runs some startup acceleration programs through partner, a partner network around the world. So they focus on key ecosystems that are important to Korea, including the U.S., parts of Europe, parts of Asia. And the idea is to help support entrepreneurs in that ecosystem as they look to go global. And so that's part of what I do, work with governments, work with corporations, work with VCs, basically all the key players in you know, startup ecosystems as we try and support each other and have this knowledge share where you help startups get to their next milestones that can help with their raise. Yeah, absolutely. Is there an area that's a fascinating story, by the way, like that's a lot of effort <laughs> to get there and the, the taxi rides and all that stuff and all that testing. So kudos to you for staying committed to the mission for actually getting there and making it happen. So you do lots of different like that's what you do work with startups and helping them in their accelerators and get funding and that kind of thing is there a particular type of startup that you work with a particular industry or are you like hey i can help everybody well no actually i don't work with everybody some startups just aren't ready sometimes ideas just aren't fully materialized and you have to say no quite a bit because it's if i don't feel convinced that this is a good project then Chances are partners, customers, VCs won't be as well. So I feel like I've, in the six plus years that I've been working with startups, I've seen enough to know, you know, off of experience and almost like this gut instinct, whether or not it's worth moving forward with. And so, yeah, but, but the that we do enjoy working with typically are frontier tech and fintech, education technology, logistics. You know, we try and stay away from hardware companies just because that's really, it's difficult, you know, for early stage companies to really have success there unless you have this machine behind you. But yeah, usually SaaS startups and some of those, you know, key industries are, are things that catch up, particularly in countries where there are all these kind of barriers or a lot of bureaucracy. For example, in Brazil and Mexico, financial technology is a key area because it. It has to be. The banks control everything. There's so much kind of red tape in those countries. And so that's an example of an area of the world where fintech is particularly hot right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in Kenya, I was watching the taxi driver and my friend who I was with just pay each other through a regular 
telephone, right? You don't need like here, you need an app, you need Venmo, you need PayPal, you need something like that. And they were literally texting the phone number, texting the code, putting the amount of money that would need to be transferred and just handling transactions that way. And it made it so accessible because most people have a cell phone, but not everybody has a smartphone. So is that kind of like the fintech industry? Is that, would that be an example of that kind of technology at work? Absolutely. I think that's a, a fantastic example. Another one that I've, I've heard of is in, in Brazil, where I think 55% of the population there is unbanked or underbanked, which just means that they primarily deal in cash businesses, whether they're kind of mom and pop shops or local brick and mortar stores, they only deal in cash in some of the more rural areas outside of the major metropolitan areas like Sao Paulo and Rio. But a lot of you have smartphones. And so how do you turn a smartphone into like a payment portal for a business is something that they've been looking at. There's a company called Cellcoin that we worked with in the past is doing quite well in tackling that issue. So we're really interested in companies like that, that are thinking, you know, innovatively about how to solve some of these issues. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So when we met or we met a couple of times, but when we actually worked together, it was through Street Code Academy, which is a nonprofit organization in East Palo Alto that is specifically working with underrepresented, under-resourced communities to just help bring technology and ideas to life. So what is the role that you played with them? Because I imagine, maybe I shouldn't make this assumption, but I'm I'm imagining that maybe that's a different type of advising than these international fintech companies? It is and it's not. I think East Palo Alto, which is near and dear to my heart, it's where I'm from. I, I grew up there and it, I always thought it was odd that it's just kind of a stone's throw away from Stanford University and, and Sand Hill Road, which is where all the VC firms are. It's just the contrast and kind of opportunity and development was very stark. And so I love working with Street Code because we're trying to build the next generation of leaders, entrepreneurs, tech enthusiasts, because that's really the, the digital economy is the present and it will be the future. And so how do we start training some of the people in and around, you know, underserved communities across the nation, not only just East Palo Alto and the greater Bay Area, but how do we really give them the tools that they need to be successful and start changing the mindset, right? You think about like generational wealth, not necessarily there for people, you know, from underserved communities, black and brown people. What we're trying to do is change that mindset bit by bit. It's not easy. A lot of people are risk averse. They don't look at entrepreneurship the way that perhaps you and I do. And what it does, it, it keeps them from taking risks that they would otherwise if they had like a, a safety net, you know, from their parents, from their network etc. And so what we're trying to do is change that mindset. One of the things that we came up with, especially last year after the unrest following what happened with George Floyd, we were thinking about how do we really take this a step further? We started with a business class. I was helping out with that for a couple of years, initially mentoring and then taking more of a role as a elite and then from there, wanted to, we noticed that there was there were quite a few people who took the class that were were asking like, what's next? You know, how do we how do we stay involved? How do we keep the momentum going? And that's when we came up with the idea for accelerator program, which is 
kind of a hybrid between incubation and acceleration. I think what we're trying to do is train them on all things lean startup and get them to a point where they have a great story to tell, the traction that they need to be attractive to investors. And so, yeah, I can go into a lot more about the program, but it all culminates in a demo day at the end of the year. And our hope is that, you know, they'll have some interest from VC community, the VC community that we're connected to and hopes that they can continue their development and scale their companies. Yeah. So what are businesses like when they come in to Street Codes Accelerator? And then what is the metric you want them to hit? And I'm I'm asking this because I get a lot of people that say, Asha, I've got this idea. You know, I really want some money for it. What do you think? And I'm like, I'm having trouble understanding exactly what it is that you're doing. If a little kid asks you for money and they're just sitting there, you're going to be less likely to give them money than if they're saying, this is what the project is that I've been working on and this is how it's going so far. I just need 10 more dollars to get the shoes that I want because I've cut all these lawns and I've made some progress. And I feel like business is the same way. It's harder to get money for an idea, right? But if you're showing some work along the way, then people can buy into your work ethic and where you're going. So where are some of the businesses at when they start? And then where do you want them to be before they're ready to present themselves to a BC? Sure. So when they come into the accelerator, they typically have an idea. We go through an ideation workshop really early. This is kind of pre-accelerator just to kind of get an idea of who is interested, who's committed to kind of learning more, who has the desire to even take that next step in entrepreneurship. And so a lot of kind of the pre-work that we do leading up to the accelerator is about relationship building and figuring out personality types and if people are curious, if they're passionate. And then from there, when they enter, in, by the way, we select around 10 startups to come into the cohort and each of them have $2,000 that they can access for their companies. And generally that goes toward product development. Sometimes it could go toward hiring consultants for design work or something like that. But they typically come in with an idea. Some of them are a little bit further along, I would say, out of the current cohort. There were about two that already had websites built, that had been working on transacting some initial sales. So the cohort doesn't always necessarily come in at the same level, but all that to say the outcomes for each of the startups could be a little bit different depending on you know their background and how much working on their company prior to joining. But the kind of the end result is similar in that we want them to tell a very cohesive, compelling story about all the progress that they've made over the course of years time, in which case they can really highlight some of the product development that they've been doing, vetting customers to figure out if they found truly found product market fit, getting some of those those initial sales. And moving toward working on marketing and, and business development activities that can help them to scale their companies further. Finding product market fit is always the most difficult thing. But once they get there, that when we try and retard their development and business development and get them to hit some of those key milestones that can be attractive to investors. Because as you mentioned, an idea isn't enough to get most investors excited about a company unless you've already produced an exit, unless you've already had success, right? And then it's it's kind of a no-brainer because they're really the talent as opposed to the idea. 
the uphill battle that most first-time entrepreneurs have is, how do I fund my company? How do I start my company when I haven't had any previous success and I'm looking to do all these things to help my company and, and scale it, but I don't have the, the funds that I need. And, you know, there's a, the classic story of Jeff Bezos who went to his family early in his development of Amazon when he just had the idea his family all gave him upwards of 250,000, I think, to get started or more. I, I forgot the number, but it was just, it's just something wow. that most yeah. people obviously just don't have access to. And that's when the gener- the conversation about generational wealth comes in. And obviously, you know, as I mentioned, risk aversion plays a part. So we're trying to, with this accelerator, identify people who are passionate and really solving issues that they're experienced with and something that just having a mindset that even if they didn't even get into this accelerator, they would probably still continue. We want to find that kind of personality type because then it does it. It's not work. It's more of a passion. It's something that they're really in. And so, and we feel like we'll have a better success rate with the, with the entrepreneurs. So there's just a few things that we look for and, and some of the outcomes that, that are desirable on our end. Yeah. Yeah. And, and entrepreneurship is not easy. I mean, it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I always say, I don't have children, but I say, I feel like it's probably like having kids, right? One of the most rewarding, but most challenging things you'll ever do in your life has this great potential, but it's its own thing, sort of speak, right? So, you know, there aren't any overnight successes. Even the, the companies that take off from one day to the next, someone's put in years worth of work or has educated themselves and worked really hard to get them to the point where they can do that for a company. So for anyone out there that's listening and thinking, well, you know, it's just going to happen tomorrow. It might happen tomorrow if you've been putting in years and years of work. And, and also, I don't say that to like cut down anyone's timeline or anything like that, but just realistically, entrepreneurship is a challenge. And I think it's a really good idea to look at some of these accelerators and get that support. And I also really appreciate that Street Code is in the community, black and brown communities, really trying to help black and brown business owners, because again, we're just underrepresented in the business world, but we've got a lot of skill, a lot of ideas, and we just need to get that shot to get out there. So thank you for your work in that. How diverse would you say the companies are that you're working with? Like when you're working with founders, what is the ethnic representation, the demographic representation in terms of male, female, or non-binary? You know, what is it? What does that landscape look like? Yeah. So out of the 10 companies or the 10 founders that are, that are in the cohort, nine are female and they're all either black or brown. So, I mean, it, as an extremely diverse group, we couldn't be more thrilled. We have some that trend younger, some that are older. And so from an age point, it's, it's pretty diverse as well. And so we found that it makes for an, a incredibly well-rounded cohort, a lot of diverse viewpoints. We have these meetings that we have every two weeks and we get to hear from all the startup founders and just the way that they relay different ideas and, and, and viewpoints in those sessions so valuable to everyone. And so I think it's, I think the cohort that we have almost like a family, we want them to stay connected even beyond the accelerator. And so we're trying to create this environment where people feel heard, they feel respected, they feel valued and that they trust each other. And so, you know, that's a big part of any, the success of any acceleration program is 
having diversity, but also the trust factor and the ability to support each other, whether it's liking or commenting on social media, sharing with their network, what other people in the that are doing. And so it's just a complete, you know, win-win, I think, for everybody to be in this kind of a, an environment for a very early company when there's just so much unknown, there's so much self-doubt that kind of creeps in as the imposter syndrome, all these kind of ideas going on, you know, in your, in your mind, and it can cause a lot of people to want to quit. And so just knowing that there are other people on that very similar journey as you, really goes a long way toward keeping people motivated and wanting to kind of see this through. It just is so valuable from that standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And there isn't the same kind of representation in a lot of the other more popular, you know, accelerators or incubators. But I think it's so important for us to be at the table. I remember I was in Haiti in law school and we were driving around Cite Soleil, which is one of the slums in Haiti. And the person leading us around was saying, you know, the UN, not the UN, it was the International Red Cross came in and built this latrine in the middle of the slum. And they thought it was a really good idea, but they didn't talk to any of the local folks about it. So the latrine was like, a latrine was like a big set of outhouses, essentially. And there's no sewer system in Haiti, especially not in Port-au-Prince. And so at some point after a year or two, the latrine filled up and the waste doesn't go anywhere. And now people are like, great, now we've got all this stuff in our neighborhood, which wasn't what we asked for. But these folks from the outside came in and told us what we needed. And I always think of that story because providing solutions, I think, should come from within the communities. I think it's so important for us to be at these tables and these discussions, starting our own businesses, because if there's something that you want to fix that especially impacts your community, you are the best person to sit at that table. Don't wait for some outside help, but figure out how you can do it and just spread your idea. Have you seen that kind of impact with some of the businesses that, you, that you've worked with? And like, just how important is that representation when providing services in one area or another? Yeah, that, that's super important. We want to make sure that the people who are consuming a lot of the, the products out there are also being heard. And it's one thing to have a big corporation, you know, hire someone to kind of do that for them, but it's not as authentic as building something from the ground up from someone who has that perspective, who's been in that arena, in that community, in that space for some time, who's actually keenly aware of the challenges that, you know, they're problems that they're looking to solve in, in the way that they're doing it. There are countless examples of startups also that as they grow, they look to maintain a certain type of culture that is unique to the people that are building the company for the people that they're, they're building it for. And so having that representation is so important. I would also mention that there's this company, there was foundation called the Emerson Collective that was recently in touch with me, uh, someone from East Palo Alto. Uh, this is an organization that bought up a bunch of land in East Palo Alto. He's talking to people from the community to, to figure out like, what are some things that we can do to really help the community? How can we empower people from the community economically? And so just having People like myself, people from the community that can really come in and, and, and share those ideas, but doing it in a, a meaningful way where we're respecting the heritage of the city, the culture of the city, the people where they came from. It's, it's so important to, to do that. So from that standpoint, 
you know, it, it's really, really good to have that representation as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I tell I tell my students, too, because I'm also an educator. I tell my students, bring your whole self to the table. I think a lot of times we can look out, especially when I was in law school, you know, all of the most of the attorneys that were popular and killing the game were mostly white men. And then it was white women and the appearance. I didn't see myself in. I wasn't necessarily intimidated by it, but I didn't see myself in that. So I make sure that I tell the students who are coming behind me, like, bring your whole self to the table. You have to learn how to use the common language, the common terms of business. But like, if you want to be that firecracker, that's your brand, be that person, right? You don't conform, but learn the language and then make your choices about how you show up. Yeah. I say the same thing to entrepreneurs. You know, it's one thing to kind of learn the terminology of Silicon Valley, business lingo and all that, but be yourself, you know, because people can tell when you're, when you're not, when you're trying to be something that you're not, and it's not as authentic. It doesn't come across in the way that you speak about the company because the passion's not there, the comfortability's not there, like who you are and why you're doing this. And so I completely agree with you. It's so important to just be who you are in the context, obviously, of the business world. But that authenticity is very key. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I have learned that you also speak a couple different languages. How many languages do you speak? I speak three. So outside of English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Okay, cool. Which one did you learn first? Yeah, I got to give a shout out to my mother. She got me into Spanish at a very young age, eighth grade, and then all throughout high school. I took two years of AP Spanish. When I got to undergrad, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Costa Rica, which was a fantastic experience. By the way, like earlier in my life, I also started going to church in Spanish. And so, like, I was just so fascinated with the culture. At one point, I I did want to quit. I'll be honest. Like, I think it was because I didn't do too well. (laughs) Ninth grade, I think I got C's in Spanish. And I just told my mom, I was like, I'm not very good at this. Maybe I can transition and take in a photography class or something like that. She said, Bobby, just give it one more year. If you still feel that way then, you know, we can talk about it. But obviously she saw something in me that I didn't at the time. And so thank goodness I stuck with it. It started getting easier. I stopped overthinking it as much and just started relaxing and trying to enjoy it as much as possible. And then by the time I got to Costa Rica, I mean, that was a fantastic experience because, you know, you're inundated with the culture, the language, left and right. You have no choice to kind of fight or flight, you know, that sort of thing. And yeah, that's how I learned Spanish. I just kept up with it. And obviously being here in, in California, there is no shortage of opportunities to speak Spanish if you want to. Right. So whether it's with friends, with people that you see kind of out and about different restaurants that you go to, et cetera, it's always fun to, to kind of have that on my belt. But with Portuguese, when I went to business school, Again, I had the opportunity to study abroad. I took the chance to go to Brazil just to round out kind of my Latin American experience, if you will. And so when I got there, I didn't speak any Portuguese. I started taking a couple of classes at the university that I was at, but I didn't really get as much out of it that I wanted to. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to stop hanging out with English speakers because, you know, at the school that I was at, there were so many people that of Europe, US. And so I just started hanging out with natives 
Portuguese speakers the entire time that I was there, the rest of the, after the second or third week, that's all I did. And I started, initially I just started listening and developing an ear for the accent. And then it just kind of took off from there. So I was really, really happy with that. I've, I've gone back several times, spent probably a little over two years off and on in Brazil. And so I, right now I probably speak better Portuguese than I do Spanish, but I love both languages. I love Latin America. Yeah. Right now I speak Portuñol once I started learning Portuguese. So we have kind of similar stories. I started learning Spanish. It wasn't until I got to high school that I started learning Spanish and then just kept with it. I was totally fascinated with the culture, with the cultures, with the language. And I think part of it was because like, I grew up as one of the only black kids in, not the only black kid in Portland, Oregon, but the only black kid in my neighborhood in Portland, Oregon. So there was like this identity, this familiarity that I that I was seeking. And I think that's what really led me to be just fascinated with learning Spanish and traveling to Mexico and spent some time in Cuba. And I'm really interested in the Afro-Latin diaspora. And then let's see, in college, I had a boss who was from Portugal, but I didn't get excited about learning Portuguese until law school. One of my really good friends, Erica, is Brazilian and her mom had a restaurant in San Francisco. We'd go over there, eat food. And I was like, oh, I got to learn this language also because I'm nosy and I want to know what people say. So (laughs) after that, and I studied abroad a couple of times in undergrad, also in law school and Spanish speaking countries, and then just took some time on my own to go to go to Brazil and learn some Portuguese, headed there for the World Cup, and have also just been like in love with learning ever since then. But since I started learning Portuguese, now I just speak Portuñol. Like nothing comes out totally in Spanish and nothing comes out totally in Portuguese. I'm just all confused. But it has led to some awesome opportunities. Can you can you talk about some of the opportunities that learning other languages has led to for you in terms of the business side of things? Yeah. Before I get to that, I just want to give a quick tip to everybody. If you ever are I get this a lot. Like, how do you learn the language? What's the best way to go about it? I would always encourage people to to think about what they're passionate about. Like for me, it was music. I love salsa music and I love samba music. And so I wanted to really learn what it was that people were saying, because you can try and get the, you know, go on Google and just run a search for certain songs and find the lyrics that way. But there's there's something that's kind of lost in that translation. And, and I, I knew that if I really wanted to understand Portuguese in the way that it was being spoken, I would need to learn. And so sometimes that passion, just similar with technology, it's what drives you even when something that you're doing is, is very, very difficult on the surface. And so as far as Portuguese goes, though, Brazil is a a very strong ecosystem country for technology. And so while a good number of people do speak English, it's just great to be able to converse with them in their native language. They're always, they feel like they're on kind of an island by themselves and no one really cares about Brazil except for, you know, to come for the Olympics or something like that or for carnival. But (laughs) I was there (laughs) having someone that really cares about the culture just from a very kind of a pure standpoint really goes a long way in developing relationships, which is key to any business that you're in. It's like, how do you how do you connect with people beyond talking about business? And, you know, one of the ways you can do that is through understanding their culture, learning their language and really taking interest in some of the things that they're interested in, because Coming from the U.S., we dominate pop culture. Everybody loves American movies and music and whatnot. But 
it's not always reciprocated. And so when you do take that step and learn about other countries and what they like, it really does go a long way toward developing some very meaningful relationships that can lead, lead to future business. So I take the approach of learning about people first, business comes second. And what it's led me to do is actually, you know, run corporate accelerators in Brazil to link with the VC community out there to give talks. I've flown to Brazil countless times for business, but then also to, to Mexico. Like, you know, it's really opened up a lot of opportunity because there aren't a lot of Americans who show that genuine interest in being connected beyond a surface level with the countries that, that you want to do business in. And so if they find people that are genuine about it, they tend to form these like lifelong relationships that I've been fortunate to benefit from from a professional standpoint. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and you're talking about two things that you're passionate right, about, right? Business and technology and then language on the other side. And you've been able to merge the two of them. Like things don't always have to be so calculated, but just being like you were talking about earlier, being in your authentic self, right? And these opportunities come and present themselves to you. And then you've got the skill set behind it, of course, to back it up. But the interest has come from the passion. So for all of you out there who are listening and are thinking about learning languages or speak other languages, a friend of mine told me the other day, she her first language is Russian. And she said she immigrated to the U.S. when she was, I think, 11. And she met some ladies who wanted to have her help them lose their accent. She was like, you don't need to lose your accent. You just need to be understandable. You need to be understood. And I was like, oh, that's even great advice for me because when I try to speak other language, I'm like, oh, I sound like such a foreigner. I sound like such an American. I'm butchering this language. I don't want to speak. And she's like, no, 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 no. You just want to be understood. You don't have to be perfect. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really going to take that to heart because people are going to understand what I'm saying. And then that just opens the door. And if I can, you know, kind of relax and let that happen, it just opens the door. So whether you are learning English and listening or you're learning another language and listening and trying to do some business in another country, like just go with it. Just open up and let it flow. Be understood, but let it flow. <laughs> Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's what I was trying to say earlier is that when I stopped overthinking it, when I just relaxed and just said, look, I'm going to be me and hopefully, you know, people understand that it's coming from a, a good place and they'll accept me for my faults and practical errors and whatnot. Because I, I think all of us have met people who aren't native English speakers here in the U.S. and we're like, yeah, we're used to it. Go for it. You know, I can understand you, but it, it's something that's more accepted here. And we don't think about it from the opposite standpoint. When we're trying to speak and interact in a different language in another country, people just like that you're able to, you know, put yourself out there and take that step more than anything. And just kind of getting out of that comfort zone is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's see if I can recap our conversation. So the accelerators are important. The community is important. And if you can find a community that is also an accelerator, do that. If you can't find a, an accelerator, just find the community of people who are going in the same direction as, as you, who can help you get to where you're going. Authenticity is key. Authenticity in your business. Also just authenticity as you approach relationships and build relationships. Maybe relationship building is that third thing that we talked about that's really important. And then, you know, relax, go with the flow, bring your full self to the table and then see what happens. Is there anything else you think I should add to wrap it up? 
You know what? Keep in touch. Use LinkedIn early and often. Add people. Figure out what they're up to, what's what's important to them. I think it's easy to lose connectivity with people if you're not diligent about it. And so we talk about relationship building and maintaining. Some of it involves work and that could be done on a rolling basis through tools like LinkedIn. So just be authentic and be diligent about how you both develop some of these relationships and maintain them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out. Also have, you know, the skill and the in the package to back it up, but don't be afraid. Don't underestimate that relationship building. So speaking of relationship building, can they find you on LinkedIn? Can I put your LinkedIn link in the show notes? Absolutely. We'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you, Bobby, so much for your time today. I appreciate you. I know my community appreciates you. And we look forward to seeing what country you will be in next, what business venture you will be working on next. And yeah, good luck. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot, Ashley. Appreciate you having me today. If you want to learn more about how you can build a business and leave a legacy, check out our online community where we dive deeper into these concepts. And I literally pull back the curtain to show you how I help entrepreneurs just like you build a sustainable business that leads to financial freedom. You can find out more at the WilkersonLawOffice.com. Hey family, I am so thankful that you are here listening to Transcend the Podcast. And I just want to make sure you know the best way to stay in contact with me. And that's through joining my email newsletter. So please head on over to the wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter and join the list. I will tell you everything over there from what my offerings are to bits and pieces of information about how to grow and scale your business to self-coaching all the way to giving you updates on what the new podcast episode is. So don't hesitate. Go do it now. The wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter. Thanks.